Welcome to episode 100, yes, 100, of the Introvert Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Beth Below, and it is a true pleasure to be spending this time with you today. Whether this is your first or your 100th episode, I hope you hear something that will make you smile, spark an insight, improve your business, or maybe even change your life. I am so incredibly pleased to be presenting this 100th episode to you. When the first episode was posted on iTunes on August 13th, 2010, I don't think I imagined that we'd still be going strong and be doing better than ever, actually, 100 episodes later. To be honest, I didn't think that far ahead. It was a grand experiment, and all I knew was that I enjoyed interviewing my fellow introvert entrepreneurs and putting their wisdom out into the world. I can safely say now that starting and sustaining this podcast has been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done, both personally and professionally. To mark the anniversary, I decided to pull short excerpts from the top five most downloaded episodes of the past five and a half years. These are presented in no particular order, except I did decide to start out with the most downloaded episode. That episode features my interview with Debbie Page Whitlock, and it's titled Money and Mindfulness. You can read more about Debbie, as well as everyone else featured in this podcast, in the podcast show notes. And because the occasion feels too important to limit the spotlight to five people, I've included links to the top 20 most downloaded podcasts in the show notes. And in the spirit of year-end lists, since we are close to the end of 2015, I've also included the top 10 most downloaded episodes from 2015. Now on to the show. You're going to be hearing from Debbie Page Whitlock, Laurie Helgo, Donna Rowe, Susan Kane, and Mary Ann Rodmacher. Each of them has valuable insight and a unique perspective that adds to the richness of information that we have about introversion and entrepreneurship. And of course, you'll find links to the complete episodes in the podcast show notes at theintrovertentrepreneur.com. I hope you will join me and enjoy this stroll down memory lane. We first hear from Debbie Page Whitlock in a podcast from December 2010. Debbie is an award-winning business coach and entrepreneur. She works with women business owners to accelerate business growth through strategic marketing, sales, and increased cash flow. She is a frequent commentator on women and money through media outlets such as Forbes and New Wire Investor. In this first excerpt, Debbie explains how she went from avoiding networking to becoming the executive managing director of the Seattle eWomen Networking chapter. In the second short segment, she shares her experiences with taking time to turn down the noise in her life. It's a crazy journey, and I think that... um you know, for people who are, you know, familiar with you and your work and the idea of the the introvert entrepreneur, I think that there's this idea that as entrepreneurs and as business people, we're all extroverts and we just, you know, live life all the way to that end of the spectrum. And in reality, as you well know, um, many of us are incredibly intensely introverted um, and choose to live our life that way. And, you know, what happened for me was, I had always had this idea that I was an introvert, um, that I was painfully shy, that um, social situations scared the bejesus out of me. Uh, Walking into a room with, especially at a networking event, because it can be really intimidating, um, especially on your first time there. You know, you can walk into, whether it's a chamber meeting or another professional group, you know, and you can be walking into a room with 25 people or 250 people. And what 
what happened for me probably three years ago was this realization that I wanted my I wanted to create an opportunity for my business to grow, and in order to do that, I had to address that what I consider kind of this personal fear of. Um, you know, of networking, of putting myself out there in the community. And I think what I had really wrestled with a lot was the idea that in order to be successful in social situations, in networking events, you had to be the life of the party. When, in fact, um, through some very careful guidance and tutelage from some amazing people that I met uh, over these last three years, um, I think that, interestingly, the most successful entrepreneurs I meet are the introverts. Um, because we're really good listeners. Uh, we are really great observers. And so once I gained that, I guess, affirmation that it was okay to be in a networking event or a social situation and to be the good listener and to be the good question asker, um, the world really began to, uh, you know, to unfold for me professionally. I found that I had a depth of resources for my clients I never had. And, well, and I think, too, that, you know, with as much noise as we get in our life, uh, you know, um, between how connected we are, mm-hmm. you know, your cell phone, your work phone, you know, if you still have a home phone, you've got your, you've got your smartphone, you've got your iPhone, you've got your iPad, your computer, your Facebook, your Twitter, your LinkedIn, you've got all <laughs> these ways that people can write. I'm picturing that Calgon take me away, you know. <laughs> and you know what's really crazy is like you have all this stuff coming at you. And so part of this ritual and this, I will tell you, about this was the hardest thing for me is as part of this ritual it's the first thing I do it's not the first thing I do after I turn on my computer it's the first thing I do because if if I keep letting that you know the technology piece of life in at me I, I wasn't hearing the whispers I wasn't hearing the messages that I was meant to hear because I was already getting caught up in something else most likely about someone else, and I wasn't taking the time for myself. And and if people can kind of put their, you know, stake in the ground, especially it's coming up on the new year, if they can put their stake in the ground and they can say, if I do only one thing this year, if I only do one thing, and that is for 15 minutes, I'm not talking, this practice, just so we're clear, is not hours of meditation and journaling because the journal is still my nemesis and we do not have the most loving, peaceful relationship. However... <laughs> If they can even just take 15 minutes or if that seems so much for them in the morning, even 10 or 5 minutes to just make this part of their practice before they turn on the computer, before they check their phone, I can pretty well see they will in a short period of time start feeling the effect of that and that feeling will create an opportunity, especially for, you know, those of us who are entrepreneurs and business owners, uh, it'll it'll create opportunities that they, they haven't even thought of yet. <laughs> Speaking as someone who often turns on her computer within 10 minutes of waking up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're, we're really important, Beth. I know. We're really important. And at 6.30 in the morning, by and God, there might be something on there that takes my attention. The world is waiting. <laughs> Exactly. Isn't that interesting? There's a, there's an element of kind of there's a, there's an element of setting aside ego that comes with it, you know, and setting aside and, and just saying, okay, get over yourself. 
it can wait, mm-hmm. you know, get over yourself and get into yourself by mm-hmm. sitting, you know, quietly and, and centering yourself. Because one thing I realized a few months ago is that, okay, I'm alone, quote unquote, alone in my office all day, yet I'm almost never alone because I'm so connected to all this input and stimuli and people um, in, in written and, and in phone uh, communication. And so no wonder I'm tired even after a day alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Yeah, and you've got to take that time. We've all got to make time, you know, to recharge that battery. And it seems crazy. You know, people say to me, have said to me, well, how can you do that? You know, I mean, what do you mean recharge your battery? You've just slept for eight hours. Oh, okay, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. But let's just mm-hmm. pretend I did that thing. I, you still need to plug into yourself before you can do any good for anyone else in the world. And I, that has become crystal, crystal clear for me, especially because so much of the work that I do in my financial practice is around women in transition, the suddenly single gal. She's usually in a crisis mode. And if I don't have myself cared for first, I can do nothing and be nothing for her. Now we hear from Laurie Helgo in an episode posted in February 2013. Dr. Laurie Helgo is the author of Introvert Power, Why Your Inner Life is Your Hidden Strength. She's a clinical psychologist specializing in personality and the psychology of desire. As Onit of Book It Literary Consulting, she enjoys helping writers prepare their books for publication. Helgo also authored the cover story, Revenge of the Introverts, for the September-October 2010 issue of Psychology Today. In these two snippets from my conversation with Lori, she tells us about the different types of introverts she's discovered through her research and writing, and then she gives us advice for surviving conversations with the chatty Cathy's in your life. One chapter that really resonated with me that's a carryover from the first edition is called Becoming an Alien. And you have a really wonderful and brilliant way of describing the way that um, the relationship that introverts have with society and then society with introverts. And you talk about shadow dwellers, accessible, accessible introverts, and the third option. Can you tell us more about those uh, kind of different introvert identities? What I talk about is what happens when the introvert feels a clash with society. Uh, society uh, says, you know, be this way, get out there, be more outgoing. And, and the introvert feels this conflict. Okay, so what do I do? Do I... Uh, one, just pull away from society, or two, conform. And so there are the first two options I talk about are are ways that we go one way or the other with that. The the pulling away and or even accepting some of the negative stereotypes of introverts. Uh, might result in more that shadow dweller identity. Um, and the nice thing for shadow dwellers is that they, they do kind of get to hang in the shadows and don't get the, uh, as much stimulation in terms of uh, being treated like extroverts. And I, I talk about the goth subculture as just a, a very nice example of, of a subculture that just says, okay, we're going to just put this out there, you know, this kind of darkness and and deal with it <laughs> kind of thing. And, you know, and it, rather than uh, feeling like they have to, you know, engage around that, that's put it out there and, and be, uh, and be a little freer. 
and, and sometimes I kind of envy that orientation. And there are just many, many subcultures that have that kind of shadowy um, or uh, kind of extra societal <laughs> identity, some, you know, extraterrestrial maybe even, um, <laughs> depending upon the group. Um, you know, and, and artists maybe who wear black and really, you know, carry around a dour expression might might kind of enjoy, yeah, you know, this is kind of nice. I get off the hook. So there are some positives, certainly, and then and, the, the very positive end, you know, can be a, an activism that comes with that. Like Lady Gaga, not necessarily an introvert, but, but, um, but does kind of like, you know, let's embrace the monster identity kind of thing. So there's there's really a very, there can be a lot of power in that. But the downside is the alienation that a person can feel, and the person really is not that different than the rest of us and, and can uh, become kind of a parody of something. The other way of adapting or dealing with the pressure is to take on more extroverted characteristics to be very, I call it the accessible introvert uh, as opposed to the shadow dweller. And I I would be in more in that category in terms of the way I adapted um, pastor's kid from a family of 10 and had to smile and interact a lot. And I, and I was able to do that. And, and again, there are advantages with that because I, I learned to be engaging and make other people feel comfortable. The downside is I can make other people feel so comfortable that they talk my ear off and, um, and don't really know me in the, in, in my truest sense. So the third option I talk about is is being more openly introverted and and carrying around a different perception of society in a way because it's true it's not true this perception that we've been taught that that we're an extroverted society it's not really true because half of us are introverts and we do have some of those um, you know we're a competitive society, we do have some of those qualities in our social system that parallel extroversion. But I think when we start seeing and connecting and considering uh, introversion in the fabric of our lives, and I think so often we can actually treat other introverts in in the same way that we don't want to be treated, uh, worrying that somebody who isn't smiling is depressed or you know, uh, assuming a uh, worrying if somebody decides they want to stay home on a Friday night when that's exactly what we want to do too. So, you know, um, so making those connections and trans it's a subtle but incredibly powerful shift to say, yeah, I, I belong here and this is as much an introverted place as an extroverted place. I want to follow up on one of your chapters that's called The Conversation Conundrum. Uh, today I posted a picture on Facebook that's actually a Courier and Ives lithograph from around 1873. This shows a man being carted away on a stretcher with a caption, This man was talked to death. And I just thought that was so funny. I thought, wow, this has been going on for a very long time, even back in the Victorian age. Um, And one of my uh, uh, Facebook users asked a question. Um, Her name is Marie. And she said, any great ideas on how to stop the talking without being rude? And especially what if it's a person that you love and care about and that you want to continue the friendship, yet the energy of their talking is too much. 
how right. do you how do you handle that? Great question, and it's. I think the I'll take the two pieces to it separately because first the question about how do you stop it without being rude, uh, that's a bit of a paradox. And it depends on the person. But if we're talking about extreme, what I called extreme talkers, others have called exhausters, uh, there may not be a way to stop it without being what we consider rude. But I, I ask introverts to shift their thinking about rude just a little bit because as the man on the stretcher, I actually... Um, think that that being talked to can do harm, and I have experienced uh, migraines um, in response to a, ta- a level of talk and intensity that uh, is just oppressive. You know, and but I think we can we can do some things. We can, first of all, be more accurate with our nonverbal feedback. And I, I'm guilty of doing the nodding and ahas, which for introvert, for extroverts can be taken as a cue to keep talking. And even my little sister, who I'm very close to, said it wasn't until you, know, you wrote your book that I realized when you're quiet, it doesn't necessarily mean you want me to keep talking. <laughs> and, and it floored me because, you know, I, I felt like we'd had conversations about our conversations, you know, we, we, we've gotten into things before, but she hadn't really comprehended that because for an extrovert, uh, if they want to talk, they'll talk. If they have something in their heads, you know, that they, whether it's fully formed or not, a lot of times extroverts like to put it out there before it's fully formed and we're in there kind of working it out. So I think we can be more accurate with our nonverbal cues by, you know, furrowing the brow, brow <laughs> looking up in a way indicating we're thinking about it, which, of course, they might think we're bored, which may be also true. <laughs> and sometimes it's okay to give those cues. Uh, but really trying to give those cues. Now, uh, uh, extreme talker isn't going to care. It isn't going to pick up on that. And, and not all extroverts, thankfully, are extreme talkers. The other thing we can do, though, if, if the nonverbals aren't getting the message across, is to actually give some verbal evidence that we're thinking and need a pause. Say, hey, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Slow down. <laughs> you know. I'm thinking about what you just said, and I'm also thinking about my response to that, and and I'm gonna you're gonna lose me if you keep going. And it's just a marker, just a, just a kind of a hold on. You don't have to necessarily even give any feedback at that point, except that about your process. Um, and I often talk about the experience of going for a walk with my uh, older sister. I I was embedded between two extroverted sisters, so I got some good good training in how to, you know, skirt these things. But but at some point I stopped her and said, now wait, you're five thoughts ahead of me. Um, Because she didn't realize. I was kind of deep processing everything she was telling me, and, and I was starting to feel the strain of it. And that's a point where I would have... If I hadn't said that, I would have started checking out, which is an unkind thing to do if we're close to somebody. And even though we may feel it's rude to stop somebody, it's actually probably more rude, you know, go off, you know, and tune them out. (laughs) Um, 
So, and then at the extreme, you know, if, if somebody just doesn't get it and they're, they're talking in an abusive kind of way, abusive of your mind and your attention, then I, it, you you got to stop thinking of yourself as being the rude one. You're being the victim of rudeness and it's time to protect yourself and say, you know what, I got to go. And and then just cut it off. And they may still keep talking as you're walking away. <laughs> <They're> walking away. <laughs> That's funny. Fortunately, those are only the extreme situations. But yeah. yeah. And the other thing I say with loved ones is is to have conversations outside of the conversation. You know, like because um, it may be hard. To, you know, we always think of things later. We'll give ourselves a second chance if we think of it later. Say, you know what? I feel like. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't, you didn't really know where I was in that last conversation. I just want to tell you a little bit about my way my head works. And that can be a nice low pressure way to talk about how you talk. We all have intuition, and my next podcast guest wants us to know how to tap into it for our personal and professional well-being. This is from an episode in August 2012. Donna Rowe is an intuitive and spiritual mentor who guides and supports clients on their path of spiritual transformation. As a transformational coach, Donna works with clients at all levels in helping them discover their personal truth. Through guided meditation and exercises that foster a deep inner awareness, Donna helps clients discover their essence and navigate their lives with total self-acceptance and love. In these excerpts from our conversation, Donna first explains in very general terms the different types of intuition and how we can tune into them. Then I ask her about setting energetic boundaries and establishing internal safety. If you decide to go listen to the full podcast, you'll also enjoy a 10-minute guided meditation. You talk a lot about intuition and how important it is to our personal evolution and our transformation. And it sounds like you've certainly experienced that in your own evolution. So can you tell us more about what, I almost said introversion, intuition is. (laughs) I got all those I-N-T words all mixed up. Um, So what intuition is and how we can become more aware of how intuition is is working in our lives? For me, intuition is something very practical. And I really think that everyone has intuition and is using it every day. We just don't, we just don't know because we don't term it as such. So I'm going to explain some of the um, ways that we tune into our intuitive abilities. And the first one is called clairsentience. And I'm going to give an example of that. Um, Clairsentience has to do with feeling something in your body. So, for example, when we go into um, like a restaurant or a movie theater or some function, we always find our body intuitively knows where it's going to feel most comfortable in that setting. So it could be if we get on a crowded bus or we get, you know, again, whatever environment is, we, our body actually knows where it's going to feel most comfortable. I'm sure people have had the experience of going into a place and they're like, they're kind of like circling around like, oh, no, this isn't right. Oh, oh. And then all of a sudden they go, this is it. Yeah, you can have people saying, well, okay, I chose that because there's a window over there or you know, all that kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter really is, is your body is feeling, is uh, sensing where it's going to feel most comfortable. 
I had an experience one time when I was um, on a BART train and going into the city, into San Francisco, and there was, sometimes it's very crowded, but there happened to be a seat open next to a gentleman, a young man, um, who had a bicycle, and I went my, I went to step over and sit down uh, right next to him, and all of a sudden I stopped, and I, for some, I just didn't feel comfortable. And, you know, I had some thoughts go through my head, like, you know, Donna, come on, what's going on here? And it's really interesting. I just stood my ground, and then on the next, uh, when we stopped, uh, the train stopped, this gentleman or young man all of a sudden went into this kind of crazy state, like yelling at people. And he appeared to look, you know, normal to me, but there was something, there was a reason why I didn't want to sit next to him. Now, that's an extreme example, but it just shows you how that plays out, how, you know, there's that, that was the initial trusting that, oh, I didn't want to sit there. And then, you know, those logical, rational try to come in and say, oh, come on, he's okay, blah, blah, blah. So that's clairsentience at work, very practical. We also have clairaudience, and that's an ability that is, has to do with our, um, it's tied into our speaking and our communication. And I guess the way that you could kind of tune into your clairaudience is, uh, think about a time that you were speaking with someone you were in conversation and the words that were coming out of their mouth didn't really match with what maybe you were picking up. For example, it's the clear audience is picking up on the message behind what they're saying. This can be a little tricky. It's a little more subtle, but a lot of times women are always picking up on those examples of when someone may not, being, may not be truthful with them and they're picking up that the words are not true. They don't match up with what they intend to say. And Donna, what role does watching body language and tone of voice and inflection and other things, you know, those seem like they're all signals, but I'm sensing you're talking about something that's even less obvious or a little deeper than that. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, you can see when someone's posturing a certain way, but Mainly, when you learn, I, I teach people a lot about this and how to tune into this. And some people, you know, some people are just have a um, are more tuned into one ability more than another. Like why some people may be very strong at clairsentience, or they're very aware of that. Other people may be very strong at picking up on the message behind what's you know the words. People have these different abilities, intuition. Uh, operating at different levels, and um, some people have a higher, you know, ability to tune in. Um, there's about four different ways that they can tune in, and some people have one more than the other. Which is one of the things that intrigues me about your work is that you teach methods and practices that would seem to help introverts develop internal safety. And by that, I mean the capacity to carry our safety around with us without relying on the environment for either the validation or relying on the envi- environment to to provide us with that comfortable place. Because we know that often it can be noisy or overstimulating or exhausting or, you know, we just feel like we don't have much control. So can you tell us a, a little bit more about what you might suggest as a practice for someone who wants to have more internal safety? Uh, the first thing that I like to uh, start with in helping people tune into that, what you call internal safety, is they have to know, first of all, where they, what is their own personal space and what 
is a space of another person. So what I talk about is, so I can make this concrete for people, that we're talking about um, energetic boundaries. For example, um, when I used to do massage therapy, when at the very beginning of my career, I would go into uh, and put my hands on someone and pick up on a lot of information. Uh, it could be that, you know, feeling pain, sadness, all kinds of things. Now, at first, I didn't know how to differentiate if that was happening with me or if it was happening with the person. And even when I tried to validate that it was happening with other persons, sometimes that other person, that was the wrong thing to do because sometimes that other person was out of touch with what they were really experiencing. So they would say something like, oh, no, that's not happening with me. So then I wasn't sure. So through practice of um, meditation and learning about my own energetic space, which would be for you, your body, or your what I call the aura, because all things, we have, all things are living. So your body is just a denser form of energy. And I expect people to, to believe this until they've actually really experienced it. So when I teach people in my classes about that they're, you know, they're energetic in quality and that their body is a denser form of that energy and how to be safe with that and how to know what's going on, it's, I'm teaching levels of awareness so that they can know how to differentiate between themselves and, the, and another person that they would be talking with. So, for example, if someone goes to a networking meeting and all of a sudden um, I start talking, I introduce myself to someone and I start talking with them and they're very upbeat and they're just, it's, they're, they're a really good salesperson. And all of a sudden I find I'm right in the middle, just like a good book, <laughs> I'm right in the middle of all of that. And somehow I've lost my center and I don't really know where I'm at. But a lot of times as introverts, we don't know until we've pulled away from the situation. So I guess what I help people to do is to... When it comes to introversion, few voices have had as much influence over the conversation in recent years than Susan Cain's. Susan Cain is the co-founder of Quiet Revolution, LLC, and the author of the award-winning New York Times bestseller, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which has been translated into 40 languages, has appeared on many best-of lists, and was named the number one best book of the year by Fast Company magazine, which also named Cain one of its most creative people in business. In this fourth podcast excerpt from March 2012, Susan replies to my inquiry about balancing the paradox of not wanting to be in the spotlight with needing to be in the spotlight in order to advance a message. Then she shares some thoughts on how to show up authentically once you are in the spotlight, whether that's in a job interview or in networking. Oh, gosh, this is such a good question. <laughs> um, and it's a really, really tricky paradox. because I've thought about this before, and I thought, wow, you know, I really, really don't like the spotlight. I never have. Um, and yet, if um, if I purely just didn't like, didn't want the spotlight, then it wouldn't cause me the, then I, then I wouldn't be so focused on it as I am. You know, I would just say, okay, I'm setting up my life to avoid the spotlight, and that's the end of the story. And I, I think that for many people, that probably is, um, that probably is a good idea. You know, and I met people along the way who have sort of tried their hand at public speaking, and they just hated it, and they said, you know what, I'm just not going to be doing this anymore. Um, but I don't know. I guess I just decided, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer, and um, 
the world being what it is today, I figured that I wasn't going to be able to be an effective writer without also being able to go out and speak publicly. Because, you know, just the way book promotion works nowadays, the two really do go hand in hand. Um, And so with this book, I mean, I had done public speaking before. It's not like I was totally new to it because I had had to do it for other uh, ventures I'd been involved with. Um, But for this in particular, this book, I cared about it so passionately. You know, I have such a sense of mission about it that I felt like I am going to do whatever I need to do to advance this book and these ideas. And if it means coming to terms with my fear of public speaking and my aversion to the spotlight, then that's what I have to do. So, um, you know, so about a year ago, I began what I called my year of speaking dangerously, where I really worked on sort of desensitizing myself to the spotlight and um, tried to just become the best and bravest speaker that I could be. Um, And I started out mostly by joining my local Toastmasters club, um, which for your listeners who don't know what Toastmasters is, it's a worldwide organization um, with local chapters in just about every town. And it's basically a bunch of people who just meet kind of informally to to work on public speaking in a very safe and supportive environment. So what's great about Toastmasters is you can totally screw up and it doesn't matter. There are no stakes at all. Um, and people are, as I said, very supportive. So that kind of gets you used to the, just the feeling of having all those eyes on you and you start to realize it's not quite the horrifying thing that you might have felt that it was. Um, and, you know, at this point, I just want to say one thing, by the way, interrupt my own story. Yes, there are plenty of introverts who are not uh, phased at all by public speaking, so I think it's important to say that. Um, according to the studies, introverts do suffer disproportionately from stage fright compared to extroverts, but plenty of extroverts, uh, extroverts also feel stage fright, and then there are plenty of introverts who really don't. Um, you know, and in fact, there are some who have said to me, they say I'm perfectly comfortable with public speaking, but it's, it's after the talk is over and I have to plunge out into the crowd and talk to people. That's what freaks them out. I shared with my Facebook page that we would be chatting and said, you know, any questions for Susan? <laughs> and I kind of combined two that were asked that were similar. And it had to do kind of with this vulnerability. So how does an introvert navigate a vulnerable situation? And I say vulnerable for the introvert, such as being interviewed for a job or networking with strangers, you know, like potential clients. Um, it seems like those are situations when we're expected to be extroverted. And there's some validity to that because, you know, they are social situations. We're expected to kind of pull ourselves out there. Um, But how do we do that? You know, how do we extrovert as a verb in a way that honors our introvert nature? Well, you know, I think that one thing is preparing really well for the situation, which is something that introverts do really well and they do very naturally. So, you know, something like a networking event instead of expecting yourself to come up with stuff to say on the fly, you know, you can, you can sit down for 10 minutes and think about, okay, what, you know, what are some popular books or movies that I really liked and would, would like talking about and that other people would like talking about too. Um, you know, and, and similarly for a job interview, you know, taking the extra step of not only thinking about what you're going to say, but maybe role-playing it with a, a friend so that you can figure out which are the parts that you're stumbling over and make those smoother. Um, and very often what you find is that the parts you're stumbling over are the parts where you're not totally comfortable with what you're saying or you don't totally believe in, in what you're saying. 
Um, and it's really useful to iron that out because one of the one of the things that I've found that is the biggest help in combating this kind of vulnerability is um, really get sort of getting used to speaking out of your core and out of your own true true convictions because if, I, I have found that when you're really saying what you honest to God deep down think it takes away a lot of the attendant fears and vulnerabilities because you know you're you're just saying what you think and it it kind of doesn't matter if somebody criticizes you or doesn't like the way you said it you 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 know that what you said was right um, and in a situation like job interviewing that's a place where you know that that kind of thing can get tricky because you're wanting to say the truth about yourself you're also wanting to present it in the best possible light um, introverts can often feel uncomfortable about any sort of exaggeration, even if it's a legitimate one. Um, so test driving it to the, to the point where you know that you really uh, believe in what you're saying is so, so crucial. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, thinking of these job interviews and of these um, networking events, just as a series of one-on-one -on -one conversations, which for not all introverts, but for many introverts, that's the, the mode that they are most comfortable with. And... Um, you know, so putting it back into a, a framework that is comfortable for you can really go a long way. Um, and I always say to myself when I go to a networking event, my job is not to work the room at all. Um, my job is just to find one person, like one is enough, maybe a few more, but one is enough, one person who I have an authentic, honest-to-God connection with and I really enjoy talking to and I would really want to keep in touch with even if I hadn't met them at a networking event. Um, and if you if you approach things that way, then over time you end up with a really wide and deep network of people you really like. As we come to the close of this special 100th episode, I'm pleased to share my heartfelt conversation with Marianne Rodmacher, who I interviewed in April of 2013. Marianne Rodmacher is an artist, poet, author, introvert, and entrepreneur. Marianne is the author of 11 books, among them Honey in Your Heart and Lean Forward into Your Life. Her work has been quoted in the Oxford Dictionary of American Quotations and also hangs in Oprah's headquarters and in the Baseball Hall of Fame. She first tells us about her evolution as an introverted entrepreneur and then how she deals with interruptions and bright, shiny objects that show up during her creative process. Well, now I'm curious about how that translates to you as a business person, as an artist, as a writer, um, as someone who is putting yourself out there in the world. Um, how, has your, how has your business and your work evolved over the years, especially in light of your awareness of your introversion? The first 15 years of my business, I did not allow my staff, any of my public relations people, my marketing people, I allowed none of them to post photographs of me. <laughs> I I wanted the work to do the work in the world, not the personality to do the work in the world. And so I so, so nearly 30 years later people will recognize my lettering style or the voice of my writing before they recognize my name. Someone will see courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes it's the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I will try again tomorrow. And they'll say, oh, I have that piece in that lettering script in my bathroom. <laughs> I've, I've had it there for, I know that woman. What's her name? Miriam Ra, Ra, Ra. 
rod maker. So at the halfway point, so 15 years ago, because I've been doing this for 30 years, I realized that I was hiding behind the anonymity of my work and that if I was passionate about what I had to say, I needed to stand up and be seen. And boy, that first photo shoot was a trial by fire. <laughs> letting, letting an image of me be affiliated with the work of my heart. And over the years, the deeper my commitment to my work in the world has become, the easier it has been to stand up and be seen. And one of the things that, that introverts tend to have a little bit of challenge with is that standing up and being seen. Um, so it sounds like that photo shoot was a powerful first step for you. Yes, it was a real um, watermark, as as someone might say. It was a turning point in the way that I work in the world. And if if I had to be visible for something that I wasn't passionate about, I'm not sure I could do it. But because my visibility is in alignment with the core values of my heart, I spend I spend my emotional and energetic capital doing doing that. But for example, I'm going to be teaching at a at a conference for women at the end of April and I plan my weekend faculty responsibility with uh, sanctuaries. <laughs> I do not make myself available to the participants of the event the entire time. I present and I go away. And I, um, I read a book, I put my feet up, I take a shower, I change my clothes, I do something that changes the energy expenditure and I restore myself in solitude. And then I go back. It's, it's almost, Beth, it's almost a little bit like being a warrior. If you were a warrior for a cause, literally, or imagine a, a Taekwondo practitioner, for example, you could, if you were trained, demonstrate and uh, present your Taekwondo for a very long period of time because you're practiced and disciplined and you know it, but you still have to stop and rest and restore and revitalize to, again, practice and demonstrate your skill set. So that's how I manage my introversion in the context of my business. I do not require myself to be a stand-up warrior for, t for 10 or 12 consecutive hours. I build into my work the, the time away, the sequ oh, sequestering. That's a bad word to use. <laughs> At this point, yes. Oh, <laughs> but dear. Not I loved that word, but now, well, so <laughs> the, the setting away of my energy and my my. Publicness. Well, the other thing that I think comes up when we're writing, when we're working, is um, bright, shiny objects. <laughs> you know, things that kind of 
get in our way or distract us. And you have a quote on your website that I um, so appreciate. You say, digression is an excellent research research tool. Absolutely. Um, and it seems like that kind of is contradictory or flies in the face of what we're told about staying focused and don't get distracted. Um, what do you see as the benefits of digression? And how can we use it for good and to make sure it's not just like a way to avoid something that we should be focusing on? Brilliant ideas are interlopers. They're interrupters. They're, they're the guest that knocks on the door when you're at a party. <laughs> so your focus is the party and the brilliant idea is the uninvited guest. So here at my writing desk, I'm going to tell you that I can reach my left hand out and there's a beautifully decorated box and I, it's beautiful to me because it's my style and my decoration. And the top says AJA, A-J-A, awesome joys await. And then I have a box that's within reach of my right hand, and that's my worry and my anxiety box. So when the idea, the anxiety, the shiny object comes to me in the middle of a proposal or a chapter of a book or a a promise that I'm keeping to someone, I grab one of my little pieces of paper that I have placed universally in my world and I write the great idea, the awesome, brilliant opportunity. I write it down on a piece of paper and I put it in the awesome joys await box and then I go back to my project. When I'm worried, when I'm experiencing anxiety, when I wonder when that royalty check that was due 10 days ago is going to show up, Um, which is for a self-employed artist and creative, this is a significant anxiety in my life because I don't have a regular paycheck. I'm paid by performance. (laughs) And so when a royalty check is late, budgets get thrown out the window because my, my quarterly budget is built upon people keeping their promises to me financially. So, that anxiety will come tapping on my shoulder when I'm in the middle of something. So I pick up one of my little pieces of paper and I open the door of my anxiety box. I put a date on it and I say, I wonder when that royalty check is going to show up. And I put it in the box and I shut the, it's a little drawer that I've decorated. (laughs) Now my brain then is satisfied. Okay. You did something about that. You looked at the shiny object. You looked at the gray cloud. (laughs) You reacted to it. And now you can go back to the thing that you were doing. But when you resist, and every mother listening will recognize this, and every non-parent that watches that television show will hear this in their head, mama, mama, mom, 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 mother. Mom, mom, mom. (laughs) This is what the shiny object does to the writer, the creator, the focused person when they try to ignore it. So my methodology is look at the digression. See, give it the attention and promise it that it's in a safe place and you will come visit it very soon. 
and then it stops nagging you. There you have it. Words of wisdom from the guests of the five most downloaded episodes of the Introvert Entrepreneur podcast as of December 2015. If you want to get the full benefit of these guests' insights, I highly recommend going to the show notes or to iTunes and downloading the full episodes. Thank you to Debbie, Donna, Laurie, Susan, and Marianne, as well as to all of my podcast guests over the past five plus years for sharing so generously of yourselves. You have truly given a great gift to introverts everywhere. As I mentioned in the intro, you'll find links to not only these full episodes, but the top 20 most downloaded podcasts since 2010, as well as the top 10 of 2015. Before we sign off, I want to put in a plug for Carbonite Backup Services, which help make this podcast possible. Not because of sponsorship or monetary reasons. I'm offering this up of my own free will. But because it had a file that was lost, but absolutely necessary to include in this episode. I spent time looking on three different laptops, in my Dropbox account, and two external hard drives. And then, in a moment of divine intervention, I realized that the file was probably on Carbonite. After hours of searching elsewhere, I found the file I needed in about three seconds once I logged onto my Carbonite account. It totally saved the day, so I had to share this with you. If you don't have a regular backup for your files, the time to start is now. I've included a link for a free trial in the show notes. There's no affiliate link, and I'm definitely not being paid to promote them. It's simply that I believe in the product, and I believe it's absolutely essential that you have a backup of all of your precious files. I'm entering into introvert mode now, so this is the final episode of 2015. We'll be back the first week of January with more fabulous conversations with interesting guests, sharing ways you can build your business and improve your life while honoring your introvert energy. I can tell you already, I know that it's going to be a fantastic year. If you're looking for reading material to get your year off to a fantastic start, remember that The Introvert Entrepreneur is now available in paperback, ebook, or audio versions. I'm honored to share that it was recently included in Inc.com's list of best business books of 2015. You'll find a link to that article in the show notes as well. A closing thank you to Paul Messing, my podcast producer, who I have been so impressed with, with his incredible patience and formidable editing skills. This is Beth Bilo of The Introvert Entrepreneur. Happy New Year, and until we meet again, remember that success is an inside job. Mm-hmm.